Last week we finished uh, John's first letter. We looked at the final few verses in his first letter. And so this week we're on to his second letter. So we're on to John. And this is a very short book. It is the second shortest book in the whole Bible. Being only 13 verses long. And so what I intend to do is to cover the letter in one go today. There have been some questions down the centuries about the authorship of the letter. I am convinced, as are most believers throughout history, that this is clearly one of John's letters. Not only is it in his uh, very distinct style, but also... We have, for example, we have Irenaeus from the early church. Irenaeus testified that this was one of John's letters. Well, how would he know? Well, Irenaeus was the Bishop of Lyon, and he was a friend, a student of Polycarp. And you may remember me saying some time ago that Polycarp was a personal friend of the Apostle John. So Irenaeus would have been able to listen as Polycarp relayed stories of his time with the Apostle himself. When I said there was a similar style, well, there are some major points from his first letter which appear here too in much condensed form. We have the necessity of loving God. The necessity of loving others, especially the church. The necessity of obeying God. And the necessity of guarding the truth. This letter can be broken down into three sections. We have have a greeting to open with. We have the main section. And then we have the farewell. The main section itself we shall consider in two parts, one about love and one about truth, unsurprisingly. So, let's begin with the first three verses, this greeting. The greeting, it says, is from the elder. You may think this is an unusual way for the apostle to describe himself, but it it is not so unusual. In fact, Peter uses the very same uh, title of himself. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Peter says, I'm an elder too. Who's it addressed to then? It's addressed to the elect lady and her children. The elect lady and her children been seen as a rather unusual term by Bible students. Well, as I see it, there are two possibilities for what the elect lady means. Either it refers to an individual, an individual, or secondly, it could refer to a local church. And to be honest, I've not been able to ascertain which one I think is is the correct one. 
I am sitting well and truly on the fence on this. Arguments in favour of this being an individual, well, that accords with our first impression. If you read it, you are more likely to conclude it's an individual being addressed. It's possible that where it's being translated lady, the, the, the Greek word that means lady, the Greek word is kuria. Uh, and that has given rise to a person's name. Kyria, Kuria, Kyria. And so it's possible that that maybe would have been better translated as to the elect Kyria, if indeed it was an individual. The next letter of John's, 3 John, is addressed to a person. So we might say, that we expect this one to also be addressed to an individual because Third uh, John is addressed to Gaius by name. Arguments in favour of this being a local church that is meant by elect lady. Well, in scriptures that the church is often called in these female terms, uh, woman, virgin, bride etc and people who support that idea would say well why does he not use a name if in the next letter he used a name Gaius why does he not use the name here so I would say the language as we see it in front of us allows for both and I submit to you that it is mostly irrelevant because the principles here, whether aimed at an individual and a believing family or an entire local church, the principles remain the same and we apply them to ourselves in exactly the same way. So we'll just move on. This uh, opening greeting ends in verse 3 with a very full title for Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. It says, it's a very full title. In terms of his rulership, it tells us he is Lord. In terms of redemption, he is Jesus, that is, Saviour. In terms of prophecy, he is Christ, the Messiah. And in terms of divinity, he is the very Son of God, that is, God the Son. Let's have a look at the, the first part of the body of this letter. Verses 4 to 6 then. Tells us straight away that we are commanded to walk in truth. Commanded to walk in truth. Now that would suggest, do you agree, that to not walk in truth is disobedient. In other words, unbelief is sin. Let me remind you what it says in John 3, 18. John reports Jesus as saying, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why would God hold people accountable for not believing in him? 
Some might say, I simply don't believe. I don't have anything against a God, the God. I simply don't believe. The Bible would answer that there is an awareness of God in all. Man is made in the image of God and deep down in each one of us, in some very deeper than others, there is an awareness of the existence of God, even if the, the individuals don't understand what God is like. But still there's this awareness. I mean, most of the world's population, the majority of the world's population throughout all of history, even up to today, in the modern age, most believe in a God. Most believe in an almighty God who made the world. And so what type of extreme hardening must be taking place in those who profess themselves to be atheists? We have a commandment then about love and you, you will remember that I said that love is not some involuntary emotion. It's, it's more than that. It's obedient service. It's obedient service. Let me just reiterate what I said about the thrust of John's arguments. From the dawn of time, the command has been love God. Love God with your whole heart. How do we love him? We obey him. What does he want us to obey? Commandments. What are his commandments? Well, we narrowed that down to three. Love God. Love his children. And love all the others. All the other people. There is a priority there. There's a priority. I wondered whether some people think like this. They, they start with God and think, we, 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 so we need to love God 100%. And then the church, well, we'll have to maybe drop the love down a level for the church. We can't have us loving the church as much as God. So our obligations are a little bit less for the church. And then... For the general population, our unsaved friends and neighbours and family, well, we, we, we drop it down another level. We love them a little bit less. That is not the way we're supposed to think about love. Let me start you at the bottom and work up. What should our love be to the general population? I'll tell you what one believer thought his obligation was. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 9 and verse 3. Paul says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let me be crystal clear. Paul, in full knowledge that there was such a thing as an eternal place of torment, said that he would gladly go there for all eternity if it meant that his unbelieving countrymen could be saved. C can you 
Honestly, can you match that? Your love for your fellow countrymen? Your fellow humans? You know, we're surrounded by... We're surrounded by people who just infuriate us. You know? We're surrounded by people who offend us. Criminals, even. We, we have, you know, drug dealers and rapists and killers. Surely Paul meant to exclude them? Yeah? No, it doesn't say that. It sounds to me like he just had a general affinity for his countrymen. And the whatever their condition of being unsaved, whether respectable or whether downright criminal, he was prepared to trade places. That, my friends, is our starting point. That's the level of love that we're starting at. Love for the world. So let's try and increase that, shall we, to the next level. Let's try and increase that for the brethren. We have to now find a way of Loving the brethren especially. How can we possibly increase that? Well, we must. And then, at that point we say, right, it's impossible to go any further. And at that point, we have God. But to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and body, if you like, an infinite love for God is what our aim is. And you have to aim as if you can reach it. That is the level of love that God wants us to show to others, to his children, to him. Let's have a look at uh, the next part of that middle section, verses 7 to 10. It mentions deceivers. Deceivers have gone out. Deceivers. And also it uses the word antichrist. I want to remind you now that we said many weeks ago that the term the Antichrist was only found in John's letters. And it was never about an individual. So I, I caution you that if you wish to choose some individual that may or may not appear in the future or whether you want to pick some particularly evil religious leader or succession of leaders in history and say they are the Antichrist. You, well, you, need to be, you need to know that you are going beyond what John meant. The Antichrist is a spirit of deception. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And it's adopted by many people. Therefore, there are many Antichrists, not one. These, these evangelists who are antichrist in spirit, they go around propagating their error, fully believing that they are doing God's work. You just think about the zeal of some of these cults, like the Russellites or Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, they, they do, they, they've always worked very hard in their so-called evangelization evangelism so but remember that their zeal is not according to knowledge and they are every time they go out and distribute the literature or speak to a person they are further angering God verse 8 says about rewards 
we we're to be careful, guard ourselves, that we don't lose those things that we have worked for so that we receive a full reward. It's used as an encouragement. We're told to work and get a reward. And how loving is God? I said this last time. God rewards us as if we did it. But just to make sure we know what's going on, he says in the scriptures clearly that he's behind the all anyway. So even though, even all those actions that bring these wonderful results, like the salvation of souls or our eternal reward, we're reminded that it's all of him. He gives us the will and the ability to perform the very works that he then rewards us for. It says a full reward. Now, this is either present rewards or eternal. So there are present rewards. You would agree. It says in Job 36 and verse 11. Job chapter 36 and verse 11, for example, says, If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. For us, what does that mean? The prosperity of living the gospel life. Pleasures at the right hand of God are for us now, not just in the future. So it could be present rewards that is meant in John's letter, or it could just mean eternal life. They are certainly uh, both rewards of a different kind. If you look in verse 9, it says about uh, people transgressing. Now that word transgression... Here, the, the transgression is to deny the incarnation. And if you deny the incarnation, you are not of God. But the word caught my attention because of a conversation I had during our family Bible study uh, several days ago. One of my daughters asked what transgression, transgression meant. And I thought it was enough to say that it means sin. And I said that there were different words used for sin. Some of them describe sin as a falling short of a target, missing the target. Some about trespassing in places you shouldn't go. There's different words and I, I left it at that. I thought I would mention it today because it's in our text. And Specifically then, transgression is the one that means there's a, a sort of line. There's a line that we're not supposed to go past. And we run over it. And so, it's running ahead. It's like a, it's like a child in the street with its, with its parents. And the child runs ahead. And the, it's, it could be dangerous. They could run into the road or something else. There's a, another type of running ahead is... Running from traditional biblical values. And this is more like what John meant. Those traditional values, those traditional doctrines that are soundly based on scripture. People want to run away from them, break away and do things their own way. You take for example the LGBTQ plus, plus minus lobby. They call what they are campaigning for 
progressive. We are progressive. It sounds good. It sounds like the leaving behind superstition and moving on as part of some enlightened elite. Well, John meant here that people should, you know, stick with us. Stick with what we've taught. You don't run off into dangerous territory. You'll end up making shipwreck of your faith. So in the world today, we have progressives. And really, you know, folks, progressive really means going backwards morally. To ancient sins. The enlightenment of the modern day. Enlightenment of modern thought is simply going further into darkness, not light. How, how, how the world just turns everything upside down. Verses 10 and 11, we have here a, a well-known injunction from John. He says, if you have people who, say, come to your home, and they espouse these doctrines, we should, we should turn them away and not even say goodbye or have a nice day. And why a small number of Christians have tried to deny that this is meant for us to take any notice of. It's because Christianity is, by definition, it's, it's hospitable, isn't it? It's hospitable, I mean... I'll give you an example of the scriptures found in the gospel according to Luke. And chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, it says, Then said he also to him that bade him, this is Jesus speaking, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbours, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast... Call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. We're supposed to be hospitable. I was reminded of Jesus' approach. You know, we often see Jesus being very just warm-hearted, and then you turn the page, and then he's calling people names and... <laughs> just the contrast is severe and he has this different approach to the general population to the false teachers he has two different approaches he has one of warmth and then hostility and it's the same we have different attitudes depending on the situation who's included in do we think in john's list who should we include in john's list who are those that deny the Incarnation today? Well, some examples. Atheists, of course. Russellites, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses again. Muslims. Unitarians. Jews. Satanists. Gnostics. Christadelphians. And Mormons. They all fit John's description of the spirit of Antichrist, because they all deny this. God was manifest in the flesh. What should our attitude be then? 
it's, it's like this. To those people, in their role as teachers of those errors, we despise them and shun them. But as deceived people in darkness, we love them. So there seems to be a contradiction. How can we, how can we get that balance? I'll give you a practical example that might help. A JW knocks at your door. And typically, if you try to engage them in a conversation, as soon as they know that you know anything about the scriptures, they will run a mile. You'd think they'd be glad to meet someone who believed in God, believed Jesus died on a cross, believed in the Bible. But no, they will run. And before they run, you say, if you're not listening to what I've got to say about the gospel, you can just go and don't come back. And just, just go. No need to slam the door in the face or, you know, kick them off the porch. Just, 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 just do what, what I've said. Just off you go. What if a, a, some Unitarian, someone from the local Unitarian church visited our little congregation? If he started trying to teach people and convert people, I'd tell him to sling his hook. I'd tell him to leave. I'd tell him he's not welcome back again. But if those same people get in touch with me and say, I would like to speak, you know, about these things. I'm not coming, you know, with me, me JW head on. I'm not coming, you know, to, as an evangelist. I just want to ask you some questions. Now, there you have a human being in darkness who needs to be shown the light of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so I would gladly have that person in my house. I would show them hospitality. I would bring them in, welcome them, and give them the gospel. Jesus, again, if we look in Matthew 23, just to give an example of how he dealt with the two different types of people that I've just described. Well, the first readings from Matthew 23 and verse 27. Jesus lays into these people and says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Is that strong enough for you? Let me remind you, as a comparison of how he dealt with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes not as an antagonist, not with a band of people trying to make fun of him or trick him. He comes to him at night, he has sincere questions. He doesn't understand most of what Jesus says to him, but he comes with that humility and Christ receives him and sits down with him and speaks to him. Different approach. I wonder why did John advise us to shun people in this way? I'll give you three reasons the benefit of telling someone to get away from your house or leave the church. What are the benefits? 
Well, firstly, there's a witness to them. There's a witness to the individual themselves. They've encountered someone who professes to have Jesus as their saviour. A person who is sincere. And that sincere testimony saying, I'm so, I'm so interested in the truth that I'm not even going to speak to you. Because you're not here to listen, you're here to try to win some new recruits. And that attitude can raise questions in their minds when they go away. The second benefit of shunning such people is a witness to others. For example, in the street, your neighbours might, might see this happening, or the visitors to New Road might see what's going on. And they say, well, hang on, this, this, I know these people, I know that man, he's, he's, he's friendly. How come he's suddenly changed? How come he's telling these people they're not welcome? He seems to be very jealous for truth. He seems to be more interested in truth than making friends. Gets them thinking. So there's a witness to the individual, witness to the onlookers, and then also there is discouragement. The benefits of shunning such people are that we can cause discouragement. We want them to be discouraged. We want them to feel dejected. We want them to feel like they've wasted their entire day. We want them to feel like God is not with them. And by the way, I would encourage you to pray along those lines. Any who are leading others astray with false doctrines, I would say go ahead and pray that their plans would fail, that there would be arguments amongst them, there would be divisions and schisms. Pray. And when, if some dejected, disillusioned, former promoter of error comes to you searching, you will embrace them and you will show hospitality to them and you will witness to them about the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. John does not give us a warrant to extend this principle of shunning people. But can we? John describes one particular error. Can we extend that in any way to our own day? Well, we, we already do this. We, we go and give tracts out or we preach on the internet and there's no biblical permission for doing that. Someone might argue, the apostles only spoke in the open air so we shouldn't use anything printed or we shouldn't use anything on the internet. The what I believe is a more sensible position would say, well, you know, the point was communication. And while there's a place for open air preaching, there is also a place for using other channels of communication that we have that they did not have. And so that's how we reason out that these are legitimate extensions of what was originally found in the Bible. They are fair equivalents. But what I'm getting at is, can we extend this to people who promote error that is not of the type that John said? Some of the people, some of the groups or organisations with the most religious error in this world don't have the error that John spoke of. 
What do we do with them? Rome doesn't deny the incarnation. Rome, the Church of Rome, would defend the incarnation to their hilt. But then they go and call Mary, who was a sinner, they call her a mediator between God and men. It doesn't get much more serious than that, does it? There are Pentecostals who, for the most part, don't deny the incarnation, but then they support the rebuilding of a Jewish temple in Jerusalem so the sacrifices can be initiated again because they figure that that God will be pleased with those things. Well, we also have Wesleyans. We have Wesleyans. They would not deny the incarnation. They would not fit John's description. And yet, they say that Jesus died on the cross to cancel sin for people who he then lost. In other words, Jesus was punished for their sins and they get punished for all eternity for the same sins. It makes God unjust. So, three examples of people who don't fit John's description should we turn them away? If a Romanist comes to my front door, should I say, well, you're not, you don't fit the description of Antichrist according to John's definition, so come on in. Here's what I believe. I believe we can apply John's injunction to some modern-day apostles of error, but with great caution, with great caution, and how to decide and put lines down between serious error and inconsequential error. It's just not, it's just not possible to do. It is not possible to do. There is no black and white answer. It's the same type of question as is raised when, who should we fellowship with? Well, we're not fellowshipping with the church of Rome down the road. What about the local charismatic church? No. Well, what about the local... Baptist Church, that's a bit wishy-washy. Mm, not sure about them. You see, there's, there's a whole spectrum of, of error and truth. It's very difficult to make these decisions. All I can say is, each individual in each church must make the best judgment that they can. We come to our final greeting in, in the letter. Verses 12 and 13. He makes the point that this is nice writing to you. And it is nice, isn't it? It's nice, it's nice to, to write sometimes. I, occasionally I, write a, I get a scripture card and write a little message to someone and put it in a post. And in these days of email and social media, it's, it's a nice surprise. But John makes the point that Face-to-face -face fellowship is far better. I mean, I was reminded of Moses. It says in Deuteronomy 34, and verse 10. Deuteronomy 34, 10. There arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face-to-face. Face-to-face. -face. Face -face. Now, Moses did not get to see God's face, if there is such a thing as God's face. When it said he spoke face to face it means clearly he saw God clearly he had a relationship with him that was above and beyond the usual wasn't visual now we see in the same sense now we see face to face 
Now, because we live in the clarity of the gospel that we've received. And, of course, we get to see Jesus Christ in the flesh, in the world to come. Face to face in a very literal way. And so we come to the end of our letter. And so I just leave you with the hope that the very grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ that John wished for his friends might be yours in the days ahead. The Lord bless you mightily. Amen.